0: Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 46th episode, I'll be talking to Nathaniel Hubbard, aka Hub, co-host of the Titan of the Defense podcast, about the Bob and Ray radio show. Along the way, we discuss the pitfalls of the Sega Channel, the metafictional power of Thunderlips, and the short but eventful reign of Matt Nefer spot welding king of the universe we'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the math of you we join this conversation already in progress I go to work like a doctor. When All right, I Hub. Mic, so for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake?
1: Well, my name is Nathaniel Dimitri Hubbard. I generally go by Hub and have since I was like 11 or so. And goddamn it, I knew that question was coming and I thought I had prepared for it, and it is still very <laughs> jarring to describe yourself as a beautiful and unique snowflake. <laughs> Let's see. If any of you know me, it's probably through my podcast, Tighten Up the Defense, which was originally called Teen Titan Wasteland. It's a podcast that I do about comics from the Silver and Bronze Age. And I like doing it. It's pretty fun. The idea behind it was my brother doesn't really read comics that much. And I wanted to have him over and interview him about the original Team Titan run, which is how it started. And it is just an incredibly goofy, really fun run of comics. And I thought somebody uninitiated in Silver Age comics specifically, it would be fun to get kind of an outsider's view on it. The idea behind it was, oh, this will be a podcast that even people who... Who don't necessarily like this comic or even like comics will be able to listen to and still enjoy the thing is people who don't like comic books don't want to listen to a podcast about comics regardless <laughs> but it has still we've gotten some really nice plugs very early on from jay and miles at jay and miles explain the x-men and so the show ended up growing pretty quickly what makes me special uh, i got a pretty good comic book collection and a rudimentary grasp
0: of meter <laughs> I think that pretty much sums it up. Funny you mentioned the meter thing, because listeners, if you haven't heard, Hub sometimes pulls out of his ass, sometimes helped by a listener, a synopsis rhyme for every episode. And they start off really easy and then they kinda of get harder and then <laughs> they become their whole entire thing. I would listen to a whole podcast just a synopsis rhymes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I really painted myself into a corner with that one. I think it was like around the fourth or fifth episode I started doing them. Then was just like, oh yeah, I could do these. And about 20 in, I was like, there are not a lot of words or sets of words that even kind of rhyme with synopsis. And thank God listeners started sending them in because I was really screwed. Um <laughs> But even with those, like trying to figure out the meter that they have in their head while they're writing it is really tricky unless it's really clearly mapped out. But it's still so much easier than writing them myself. And there's some that I read them and I was just like, oh, huh, well, that doesn't totally rhyme, but I don't have to write it. So, <laughs> OK, good enough.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a good example of how your podcast has kind of evolved from the beginning, because I was one of the people who came in for the recommendation off of Jay and Miles. And initially, it was one of those ones of, oh, I'll get to it eventually. And then I started, and I did that thing that I do sometimes where I'm like, well, you know, this is clearly a sequential podcast. I'll just start at the beginning. And so I started (laughs) at the beginning. And to watch sort of your comfort with the material and, you know, Corey getting being new to podcasting and watching the chemistry that you two have and also, your summaries get just incredibly longer and faster. And now, <laughs> normally I listen to podcasts on one and a half or uh, two times speed. I've had to stop doing that on your synopsis <laughs> because they gotten faster and more complicated as you get into more complicated comics. And uh, yeah, so I'm right up there. I think I've got like the last two or three that I haven't listened to yet. But other than that, I'm completely caught up.
1: Oh, wow. Cool. Well, thank you. That's very impressive. If I didn't have to edit them, I don't know that I would have listened to that many of them. (laughs) But yeah, no, it's the synopsis writing is something that I keep thinking I'm going to get better at and then it will go faster. But what's happened instead is as I've gotten, I like to think a little bit better at writing them. A, the comic books are getting so much more complex and I have so much more backstory to fill up in at the beginning, but also I start to take more pride in it. And so I take more time writing it. And so what used to take me about an hour to write most of the synopses is now like four and a half, five hours. Oh, wow. The same thing is happening with the editing. Like, I keep thinking I'm going to get better at it and then it will take less time. But as I get better at it, then I'm like, oh, no, now I just realized that I had been doing a shitty job and now I want to do a good job. (laughs) So the whole thing's kind of taking over my life. (laughs) It's the curse of competence. I mean, I'm not there yet, but I'm approaching it. And as I get nearer, it just doesn't look good. <laughs> it's the
0: Ira Glass thing of you develop taste first before you develop talent. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> I'm also there with Titan at the Defense. I'm there for your incredibly specific references, like specifically your reference to the professional wrestling of the time that was me at about 10 years old at like my mom's family's cabin. On Kirkland Lake, Ontario, and we would like walk to the gas station to rent videotapes, and it would always be like a Survivor Series 1987 or something. And it's like <laughs> those would be the ones where, you know, you'd get the model Rick Martel and Tito Santana fighting, and every yeah. time Monsoon would mention, oh, yeah, they used to be in Strike Force and then they broke up. <laughs> I've never seen a Strike Force match. All I know is that every time they fought, <laughs> they would mention it. Uh, you mentioned the 87 Survivor Series.
1: I think that was where the Gobbledygooker made his debut. <laughs> That's a Thanksgiving tradition. I was super into that. And actually I loved Strike Force and I remember Tito Santana from before he was in Strike Force. Oh yeah. But it was the same process where like I had no way of watching this as it was happening. So we would go and rent the VHS tapes and it was before like half of them weren't even of pay-per-views it was just like vhs shows of like house shows and stuff i actually got into pro wrestling from the collector's cards that were coming (gasps) out at the time yes we used to play this game where me and one of my friends in like second grade or something would flip the cards in the air and like make them twirl and if one landed face up and the other landed face down then that person the face up person won and you got both cards and that was why tito santana was actually my favorite wrestler ever that was because was he had
0: the most i think i think his card was a little bit differently weighted but i decided that made him the best wrestler <laughs> see where is that the only situation where you could get like you know <laughs> a rugged ronnie garvin would be happy to be your <laughs> wwf champion <laughs> Exactly. Mike Rotundo and Barry Windham, I think, were big winners for uh, me. I, I had the card for Barry Windham when he was the Widowmaker, which is a gimmick. I think Ooh. even Barry Windham forgot that he had. <laughs> he had a ton, man. Because no one knew what to do with him. <laughs> yeah. Wait, was it him
1: or Rotundo was the one who ended up becoming IRS, yeah, right? Yeah, and who ended up siring Bray Wyatt. And Bo Dallas. Yeah. Oh, man. They never get brought up as legacy guys. I guess they have different names and shit. Yeah,
0: I, th- I think they did when they were first starting out in NXT before it was the NXT that we know now. When he was Husky Harris? <laughs> yeah. I think it's one of those ones where it's literally not doing them any favors. It's doing nothing but drag right. them down. I think that's fair. I stand by that Bo Dallas as shitty heel who thinks he's a fantastic, amazing superface is is a great gimmick for a shitty little dude. I wish they would have run with it. Yeah. And it's one yeah, that it's I, one that I remember like I remember showing like little clips of it to my girlfriend who I had only been dating for about 4 months and I made the dangerous Oh, wow, you're thing, brave. <laughs> I did a dangerous thing of being like I'm really into professional wrestling because she had cable and I didn't. And so when we were over, I'm like, oh, NXT is on. And I started to get really into it. It was right around the time of Fatal 4-Way, which is a great time to start NXT. So she started taping it for me and we watched it together. And that's great because it's like a one hour. It was like 45 minutes of wrestling with commercials. Right. And so it would just be like, oh, we could watch it this way. And that way, you know, it's not like a three hour raw that you have to sit through. God, I still can't do that. No.
1: I've only gotten back into pro wrestling in mm-hmm. the past, like, Two years, Mm -hmm. really, at all. It's gotten pretty good for the most part. But then they keep doing these, like, backslides. Yeah, yeah, I don't want the whole thing to be about pro wrestling. But just, like, I could totally go
0: off on it. But, like, they gave Road Dogg the book. And it's all been downhill since (laughs) then, man. (laughs) Yeah, we could literally, like, put this thing into the ditch and talk for an hour (laughs) on current wrestling booking. But we
1: won't. Uh, That's probably for the best.
0: But I will say that there was that clip of Bo Dallas beating El Torito and then doing a victory laugh. And in the turn of the victory lap, in slow motion, knocking El Torito over and not noticing. And I'm like, (laughs) that is beautiful. That is beautiful comedy. (laughs) That's so good. (laughs) All right. Let's bring it away from wrestling and bring it back on track. Okay. So whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in a
1: small town in New Hampshire called Farmington, which I'm pretty sure was actually an aspirational name. I don't think there were actually, and I don't think it had great soil around there. There didn't seem to be any really thriving farms or thriving much of anything else. It was a perpetually economically depressed town whose claim to fame was there had been a shoe factory
0: there in the 50s. (laughs) Okay. Although aspirationally naming your town Farmington is kind of like saying, I'm going to call my house Richmond's place. (laughs) <laughs> I had
1: a friend one time who kept getting wrong number calls from somebody whose caller ID name showed up as Rich Bachelor, <laughs> which I'm like, that's such a good name. Nice if you can get it. Yeah, but Farmington was a weird place to grow up. It's most of my stories, like I'm I'm very old, I, I'm 40, <laughs> but my stories from when I was growing up sound like I am like 140, <laughs> just because you remember how long ago the early 80s were. Indeed. Well, the early 80s in Farmington, New Hampshire were significantly longer ago. (laughs) (laughs) I used to get paid 50 cents allowance a week to mow the lawn and chop wood when I was like six or seven. Theoretically, I would get that allowance. What actually ended up happening was my dad would play poker with me for my allowance money and he would be like, you sure you want to do this? And I was like, yeah. And it turns out seven-year-olds are not as good at poker as (laughs) 30-year-old men. (laughs) And I never got any goddamn allowance. (laughs) I think the message I was supposed to take away from that was you shouldn't gamble or something. If I'm being generous and saying that there was a message behind it other than I don't want to give you 50 cents.
0: (laughs) It's one, of, it's one of those good fatherhood lessons where, yeah, it is both a lesson and a way to, like, get one over on the kids.
1: Right. Well, unfortunately, the lesson that I ended up taking away from it was, I'm do a big win any day now. <laughs>
0: What's funny is that my dad did a similar thing where when I turned 18, he took me to uh, Le Casino de Hull, which is the Hull Casino. It's the only casino in Quebec at the time. There's, I'm sure there's more now. It was 20 years ago. He took me there, and he's like, all right. You're 18, here's $20, go gamble, see what you want. And so I went to the slot machines and I did like the $1 bets and I bet And in like five minutes I had lost $10. I turned to him mm-hmm. and I say, this sucks. And he's like, yep, yeah, there's your lesson. Let's go home. Cool. <laughs> That's a really good lesson, actually. And yeah, and of course, I then went and spent the other $10 at an arcade. So really, I've got, I've got no one to blame it <laughs> myself
1: at least then you know you're losing your money at the end of it and there lies the difference I think (laughs) the other thing that I feel like I was kind of more of a throwback in time back then was my parents had a 10 inch black and white television that got PBS and on a good day would pick up a fuzzy version of the local NBC affiliate and we were allowed to watch I think it was a half hour of television a day, my sister and I combined. And she was three years older than me, so we tried to be fair about it. But basically, we would watch either 3 to 1 Contact or Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. I would usually advocate for Sesame Street, she for 3 to 1 Contact, although she only wanted to watch the Bloodhound Gang component of it. (laughs) And so... If we were doing 3-2-1 Contact, she would be outside playing and I would have to go yell for her when the Bloodhound gang came on. (laughs) Or if the NBC affiliate was working, then we would watch the Jeffersons in syndication, (laughs) which for whatever reason, I loved. (laughs) And then later on, after my parents got divorced, I lived with my dad. literally won a big screen color TV in a raffle at the same time as my grandfather bought us a subscription to cable and a VCR. And so it was just like from zero to like 10 no pop culture and then it was like full immersion and it was like (laughs) this is amazing and it was even more so because it was something that I'd kind of fetishized for so long it was a weird way to grow up and it went from being like very restricted media consumption to no restrictions at all I remember being I think like 11 and watching Videodrome with my dad (laughs) My God. I'm still too young to watch Videodrome. I'm going to give it another try in like five years and see if I'm ready.
0: But like, that is not, no child should have to see Cronenberg. No person should have to see Cronenberg unless they have actively chosen to do so. Exactly. Cronenberg consent is so important. (laughs) I know what you mean, though, about something coming in and and changing how you view things, because I'm 35, so 36 in March. So I was old enough that when the Sega Channel became a thing, because I was very good that year and our family was on an upswing, I got, now, kids at home, ask your parents about the Sega Channel. I'm one of these kids. I don't know what the Sega Channel is. (laughs) Ask your parents about the Sega Channel before you try. Now, basically what the Sega (laughs) Channel was is that if you had a Genesis, which I did, your cable provider... Would come and plug a coaxial cable into the back of a box that would plug into the back of your Genesis, which would then plug into your TV. Okay, I think this might have been part of the plot to video No, <laughs> <laughs> It never, no, I never plugged into my stomach. <laughs> oh, there were oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but now, what it would do is it would then give you access. You'd go to channel three on your TV, and you would get a little like broken UI menu, and you would get a selection. Of, i think it was somewhere between 30 and 50 games oh my god and what you would do is you would pick a game and there would be like maybe a 20 minute loading time and then you would have access to that whole game for as long as you wanted and now it was never brand new games it was always the ones that were a little bit older and occasionally they would have specials where it's like oh if you had this brand new game you would get access to maybe 30 minutes of it you'd be on a timer like i got to play sonic 3 that way and it was just like okay so you got like a little teaser demo of this game but most of them were old games now here's the thing Up until that point, I was of the crowd where it was like, oh, you rented video games from Blockbuster or Rogers Video. Right. Or occasionally, if you were real good, you'd get a video game for birthday or Christmas. And that would be your game, no matter how bad it was. Yeah. For example, my sister and I played the Super Nintendo Tasmania game where you had to run on a highway and grab little kiwis far longer (laughs) than we should have. (laughs) And so getting this broke my tiny brain oh man where it's like i think for the first day i had it i didn't leave my room for the rest of the day my dad actually came obviously at like at about 9 amazed it was only a day (laughs) well my dad actually stepped in and went you know what i think you need to give it a break let's go outside for a walk it's okay i'll take it to store and you can buy a chocolate bar or something because (laughs) like i just locked in and i didn't move like i could i actually like thinking back can feel that crt burn on my eyes (laughs) even now but oh yeah i Saved up
1: Christmas and birthday money for years and bought myself an NES. Unfortunately, it turned out like right before the Super Nintendo was about to come yeah. out. But yeah, after I got it, I still couldn't afford any games because I don't know how the economy works in terms of inflation. But video games in my lifetime have new video games have always been 50 to 60 dollars. Mm-hmm. Which in 80s and early 90s monies, that's an astronomical amount of money. So I had the package that it came with. So I had Duck Hunt and the original Super Mario Brothers. And I had Super Mario Brothers 3. And for years, that was it. I think I ended up picking up... I was super excited to get the X-Men NES game Mm. at like... (laughs) a garage sale and I was like oh
0: this is garbage (laughs) (laughs) I'm still gonna play it but it's garbage (laughs) I frankly never had good experiences with x-men games I remember renting the x-men genesis game And the first thing they do is they say, all right, well, you're forced to play as these characters, as this one character until you unlock the rest. And the whole conceit of the game is, oh, you're in Myrtle World. You're in Arcade's Myrtle World, which makes sense when you're like, okay, this explains a lot of the video game trappings. Right. Except for... All the stages are, we're going to put you in an environment that pretty much neutralizes your powers. And I'm like, because, yeah, that's what a kid wants to do. You don't want to use your powers as an X-Man. If you're Cyclops, you're in rooms covered in ruby quartz, which blocks your (laughs) IVs.
1: So you get to use Cyclops' celebrated punching and kicking
0: power. Although that scenario does sound like something that Jay would write. Just being like, no, I cannot use my powers. Therefore, I have to (laughs) rely on my innate sense of right. (laughs) Yeah. Frustrated Cyclops is the best Cyclops. I think that's fair. (laughs) But we were talking about your childhood and TV, so please.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Pre-cable years, when I was able to watch the Smurfs, I kind of imprinted on that, and I loved that. But for the most part, there wasn't, like, I I wanted to fit in with other kids, but I just didn't have the same references as they did, so I would have to kind of fake it. So from a really early point, like, my experience with pop culture was a matter of, like, research and a survival type thing, (laughs) whereas, like, I need to know what's happening happening with this stuff because I want the other kids to like me so there's this older kid that I can pay a nickel he'll tell me what happened on the A-team then I can talk (laughs) about it at recess as if I give a shit what happened on the (laughs) A-team but the things that I actually grew up listening to where a lot of it was parody of things that i didn't know what they were parodying like i loved weird al but i didn't know any of those original songs (laughs) and so i didn't know which ones were song parodies i assumed they were all song parodies and i was like i wonder what dare to be stupid was originally
0: i had that thought too and then you learn later it's like no it was a style parody of devo and you're like (laughs) that's not how it works (laughs) (laughs) yeah you can't just do
1: pastiche This needs to be parody! (laughs) Weird Al was a brilliant songwriter, and many of them were his own compositions that were in various styles, but I had no idea of that because I didn't know the song Lola that Yoda was (laughs) ripping off. Along similar lines, my absolute favorite thing in the world was this show that was an old radio show that was parodying other radio shows. I think at the time I was listening to it it was actually a new radio show because they brought it back for NPR in the 80s. But it was still mostly parodying old radio dramas that was called The Bob and Ray Show. And it is still one of my favorite things. I was actually just listening to it earlier today. And it wasn't even something that was of my parents' generation. It was of like their parents' generation. The only reason that I ended up listening to it was my mom's best friend in college was the daughter of bob elliott who was the co-host of the show and so she started listening to it and she was like i think nathan would like this because i liked the idea of humor and the shape of jokes even though i couldn't have gotten most of this shit (laughs) Uh, along similar lines i used to read like dunesbury and bloom county and i thought they were hilarious i didn't know a ton about like mid-80s politics at the time (laughs) which is what these like comic strips were lampooning. And I was like, yeah, you tell Jerry Falwell, give him the business.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I had that situation with Doonesbury as well. I remember picking up the very first volume of Doonesbury at like a family friend's house and reading about, oh, hey, this guy's in the Vietnam War and they're airlifting (laughs) him beer and he's hanging out with a Vietnamese guy and they're realizing they're not so different after all. They're buddies. (laughs) And then like opening the newspaper and going, oh, I remember, whoa, this is different. This is very different. (laughs) Yeah, I
1: read those really early ones when I was staying at my grandparents' house because my uncle had the collections of them. Also, thanks to Doonesbury, I mispronounced the word gerund for years. (laughs) How did you say it? Gerund. (laughs) Which, like, I mean, I obviously had to look up what it meant. Because I I, I had never seen that. But there was a Doonesbury comic where it was describing Frank Sinatra's dialogue. And I didn't know who Frank Sinatra was at the time either. But it had him saying to Boopsy, I believe, something obscene gerund. Or as I read it, obscene (laughs) gerund. And so I was like, that's a really cool word. I'm going to use it all the time. (laughs) And nobody ever called me on it because most of them didn't know the word gerund either. (laughs) Obscene gerund is my favorite Frank Zappa album. (laughs) Yeah, it's up there.
0: It's no baby snakes, but it's pretty good. I had that with one of the Calvin and Hobbes strips early on, where Calvin turned into an elephant, and he's sitting Did there. Did you not with... know what an elephant
1: was? <laughs> no, I, I, had... I don't know how they do things. In I a fair <laughs>
0: assumption, but he's sitting in the sandbox. Him and Hobbes. Susie walks by, and he's like, "Hey, Susie, what are we? We're the Republican Party in Tammany Hall." <laughs> and then she just kind of walks away, and he's like, "Girls don't get sophisticated humor because she can't see he's an elephant." I still don't get that joke. <laughs>
1: Oh, man, really sending boss tweet
0: up on that one. Have you ever heard the Bob and Ray show? No, actually. And I hadn't even heard of it until you mentioned that you wanted to talk about it. And I love topics like this because I get to sit back and just learn everything about it. So whenabouts was it happening? Like what sort of sketches were going on? Like, Yeah. Give me the whole details. Okay. Well, if anybody
1: of my generation or below has heard of Bob Elliott, it's because his son is Chris Elliott. Oh, no way. And Bob Elliott actually played Chris Elliott's dad on Get a Life, if you've ever seen that. Yeah. It started off as a radio show, I think, in the 40s. They, I think, started in Boston, and one of them was a DJ and one of them was a weatherman, and they just riffed off of each other and cracked everybody up, so they would bring them in if the Red Sox game was rained out. Then they would just, like, kind of do comedy vamps over it, and it got really popular. And they ended up having a radio career that lasted from the 40s through the 80s. It was mostly improvised. They would have more written-out sketches later, but... It's this wonderful mix of genial and subversive and they were sending up things that I had no idea what they were at the time, like radio soap operas. They did a bit called Stately Garish Summit. (laughs) in which everybody always starts off by introducing themselves. And they that's one of the radio things that they make fun of a ton, is how over-explained everything is because it's not a visual medium. <laughs> it's like, it's me, Rodney Murchfield, the son of stately matron of garish summit. And it's me, Caldwell Murchfield, you're no good brother. <laughs> and, and they would go from there. There's one that I think of whenever one of the segments that I do on Tighten Up the Defense is the I Just Gotta Be a Sucker moment. <laughs> oh, never mind. Sorry. That is one of the segments that I do, but the one that I'm thinking of is the show and tell moment. It's something that marv wolfman does a lot which also chris claremont does a lot where it will be he will describe something and then you will see exactly what is he is describing happening in the panel it's like you really don't need to do both mental bonds holding me back can't move exactly or one of my absolute favorites that's from a claremont one is the claws slowly released with a loud snicked noise and then you see the claws popping out and the sound effect saying snicked (laughs) Every time I set that segment up, I think of this one scene, which is from a detective show that they were doing, where the guy's saying, What are you doing with that gun that you're holding in your hand? Pointing it at you. (laughs) And it cracks me up every time. So dumb. It's all so dumb, but they just, they deadpan it so well. I think previously in that one, there had been a different character who's like, you've stuck in here wearing the disguise of someone that I don't know. And now you're pointing a gun in my face. You've shot me. I'm dead.
0: <laughs> they
1: did a bit called Matt Nefer Boy Spot Welding King, which obviously I was on board from from the beginning of that
0: that sounds like a fake radio sketch from the fallout game radio station <laughs> Spot it's
1: it's so good i think it may have actually been boy spot welding king of the universe but oh it would God. it would be like this elaborate setup that there is no payoff for i don't think matt never ever did any boy spot welding it was the whole thing would be him and his friend they would be in some kind of a scrape but the whole sketch would be them saying I'm sorry, Matt. I'm over here in the atrium. And then the, just them doing foley work <laughs> of like walking downstairs and down a hallway. And then he would get there and he's like, now, what's that you say about them not putting peanut butter up in five pound jars anymore? It's like, I'm sorry, I can't hear you, Matt. I'm down behind the shed by the old gymnasium. <laughs> <laughs> and then it'd be like three more minutes of footstep noises. Oh my God. But the level that they committed to it was so good. There was another one that they did. It was a really minor one. It was after Planet of the Apes had come out, but it was a slice of life drama called Life on... On the planet of the apes. (laughs) And the whole thing was like, Margaret, did you remember to put the ape cat out? Uh, yes, I did. (laughs) It was just like them deadpan. Like, yeah, I guess that absolutely is what life would be like on the planet of the apes. Like, they undersold so well. And I thought it was absolutely hilarious. And like I said, I still do. They would take the most simple, really, honestly, usually pretty stupid concept and just keep following it through and you could tell it was mostly just to amuse themselves they did one that as a kid was my favorite that was about the low jumping champion the whole premise was that well it's like a high jump but in a high jump you start from a low place and try to jump as high as you can from a low jump you just jump off something that's very tall And the guy was the champion because he had, like, lived off from jumping off a building. <laughs> and the announcer is making fun of him. And he's kind of is like, well, now, how did a big dumb lummox like yourself get into a sport like this? <laughs> but, yeah, they did radio announcer voices so well. And they deadpanned it. And it was hilarious. Kurt Vonnegut was a huge fan of theirs. He auditioned to be a writer for their show mm-hmm. and didn't make the cut. <laughs>
0: Get out of here, Vonnegut. Maybe you'll be successful in some (laughs) other field that's not writing.
1: Yeah, this is not where your talents lie. Maybe go sell some cars or something. He wrote the intro to one of their books, and he also wrote roles for them on... Have you ever heard of Between Timid and Timbuk2? No. It was a Kurt Vonnegut book that was published as a book, but it was written for PBS as a kind of like one and a half hour synthesis of his first four books. Okay. It's crazy, but he wrote roles for Bob and Ray on it as TV commentators and news reporters. Their dialogue was pretty much like everything else was written out, but then their dialogue was just like, you guys just be Bob and Ray. (laughs) It's that
0: Perd Happily thing of it's like, You know, that guy, he's hired as a newscaster in everything he's in, because he was a newscaster. And no matter what he's saying, (laughs) he will give it that gravitas. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's Bob and Ray. And it really, you should do yourself a favor and check it out if you get a chance. There's something about it. It may just be that I have like early childhood associations with it, but I think it probably more than any single thing shaped my sense of humor because I found it funny before I knew what humor was it was kind of like when it was you know that episode of the simpsons i think it's the stand-up one where he does homer doesn't get a joke and the person's like it's a joke and he's like oh jokes i like jokes (laughs) and then he laughs really loudly (laughs) i feel like that was my childhood experience like i knew that humor was something i wanted to be a part of even if i didn't understand what it was or how it worked yeah and this was my entree into that
0: it's something i've talked about in a previous episode when i was talking to matt wilson about noir parodies and how you start to notice the trappings of a genre before you know what the genre is. And hearing you talk about that show, is just like I'm flashing back to watching The Muppet Show and watching Pigs in Space and not getting why every time the narrator came on, they all looked around like they didn't know what was happening. (laughs) And like watching my dad crack up and be like, what? It's a narrator. What's wrong? Yeah, Pigs
1: in Space and Veterinary Hospital were my two favorite parts of The Muppet Show, too. (laughs) So good. Yeah, that was one of those where, like I said, like, I don't know where I was watching The Muppet Show. Like, I knew that I loved it and was obsessed with it. But like I said, we really didn't have TV. But I know I've seen those things. I, I guess we got babysat a fair amount. The Great Muppet Caper, I think, might have been the first movie that I saw in a theater. And if you haven't seen it recently, you should go back and check it out, because it holds up really, really well. The running gag that Kermit and Fozzie are identical twins (laughs) still really, really cracks me up, and that people can only tell them apart because
0: (laughs) bears have hats. (laughs) (laughs) And it's something that uh, I remember, I, I brought it up God ages ago I think back in like episode 5 or 6 of this this podcast but whenever people when when the first new Muppet movie came out and people were like what's Walter doing in a family full of humans you know what happened there her 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 and I'm like hey guys it's a Muppet movie a bear and a frog were twins calm
1: down yeah yeah the best example of that is the scene where they're in the park and the guy whose name I should know from old movies but he played the brother in the African Queen that is
0: literally everyone who has started a Muppet movie <laughs> yeah
1: yeah um, but he's sitting in the park with I think his daughter and Kermit is sitting there crying and she goes daddy why is that bear crying and he just goes that's a frog honey bears have hats <laughs> Maybe my favorite joke in any movie.
0: Oh, oh my God. I can't breathe. (laughs) Oh, that's so dumb. I love it. (laughs) I know. Oh, I can't breathe. See, now I'm just thinking back to more Muppet Show stuff, and I'm thinking about, like, not having seen Rocky when they had Sylvester Stallone on. And so when he turns up in his dressing room and all the Lady Muppets are there to watch him, and there's inexplicably a punching bag in his dressing room. And he's like, uh, wh- what's this doing here? Oh, nothing, nothing. Just, you know, came with the room. Hey, uh, would you mind hitting that for us? <laughs> and he goes, what, like this? And he hits it, and all the Lady Muppets go, duh. <laughs> <laughs> and he does it again. And what really blew my mind is when my dad eventually showed me Rocky Three again, far younger than he probably should have. They use that footage for when Rocky Balboa was on the Muppet show to show his like rise to fame. And all they do is they cut to him in the dressing room, punching the punching bag. And it's like, I'm like, wait a minute.
1: (laughs) That wasn't Rocky Balboa. There was so much weird meta stuff that happened in Rocky 3. Like, there's so much of that movie that watching it, it's just like, wait, what? When the marching band is playing Rocky's theme music, when he's having the statue Mm -hmm. dedicated to him. I was like... So how does the orchestra know the music that plays in his head when he's in a fight? <laughs> like, does he have theme music in real life? or that is that what they're saying?
0: <laughs> it's, like, it's like that thing in The Big Lebowski where it's like any song that's playing instantly becomes something playing on a radio in the scene as soon as you cut into it. <laughs> or no, the, the, thing, the other thing in Rocky Three, which I didn't notice until literally I went through, like before I watched Creed, I went through and I watched them all because I have a great affection for the Rocky movies. Sure. I was watching Rocky 3 and I was stunned by the sheer amount of product placement in it. Oh, yeah. Polaroid and Lamborghini were the two that really got me. <laughs> when he's talking to Thunderlips, which, oh my God, I could have a whole podcast on that scene with Thunderlips. Oh, man. It's a shoot, No, it to work. Oh. <laughs> you ever fight a dinosaur kid? <laughs> it's,
1: yeah, that whole thing made no goddamn sense. Yeah. That was so difficult for me when I was trying to figure out, like, because I knew my dad had told me that pro wrestling wasn't real, but then that whole interaction in that movie was like, through this whole other level on it, where I was like, wait,
0: so some of it kind of is, but wait, what? Nobody told Rocky before the match that it was a work and not a shoot, <laughs> and so he is terrified that Thunderlips is going to literally kill him, and because Thunderlips is protecting the business, he's hitting Rocky for real. <laughs>
1: Okay, that actually makes a lot more sense than it did to me when I was a kid. Yeah. And then, and then, yeah,
0: There's... it's because like, he picks him up and he <sighs> suplexes him. And Rocky reacts like he's just been dropped on his head. <laughs> oh, oh, man. But then at the end, instead of saying, hey, we'll get a picture later with my kid, he says, we'll get a Polaroid later. And they pull out the biggest, <laughs> chunkiest Polaroid camera and take a snap. And then later when Rocky gets upset... He has what is essentially a Lamborghini commercial where it's like <laughs> it flashes across the headlights and then across his eyes and then the headlights pop up and the engine roars and he pulls out in a hurry. And this is a good maybe 45 seconds of movie where it's just like, <laughs> let's see how cool this Lamborghini looks at night. <laughs> I love scenes like
1: that in movies where it's just like there is no reason for this scene in this movie other than either product placement or just like, eh, I, I want to have this scene in a movie because it looks
0: cool. <laughs> Have you ever seen The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh? No, although I have. you did mention that when we were setting up the episode that you wanted that as your theme. So I I read the (sighs) synopsis. I want that as my theme music for everything. It's so good. So the synopsis was that a, a basketball team is set up by astrology. And that's all I got from
1: it. Oh, okay. So here's the deal. The movie stars Dr. J. He plays a character named Moses Guthrie who's a very good basketballman. He is on a team called the Pittsburgh Pythons that is no good at basketball, despite having very talented team members. So, little boy talks to the team owner, who is played by Jonathan Winters, who plays identical twins, both of whom owns basketball teams. (laughs) One owns the Pittsburgh Pythons, the other owns the nameless Los Angeles team, That is clearly the Lakers because all of the players are played by actual LA Lakers at the time. (laughs) But they're evil, like in real life. The kid talks to the good Jonathan Winters and says, Hey, I've got this idea. What if we hire an astrologer? to put together a team around Dr. J. So they build a team that is all Pisces, so they will be astrologically compatible. And so they have the big, like, tryouts moments. I believe, do you know the character actor
0: M. Emmett Walsh? I think I do. Hang on, I'm going to quickly Google this to make sure it's the same person. Although I hear Emmett, and I always think of the farmer from Roadhouse, but that's just me. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's not him.
1: It's not the random hay distributor that runs out of barn. Every time you see him in that movie, he is just like moving hay in a basket from one location
0: to a slightly different location. It's like, what are you doing? Also wearing an an overalls and undershirt and no shirt. Well, yeah. And he has to rent it for a hundred a month, because otherwise the Presbyterians will be on his ass. (laughs) Okay. Oh, Uh, yes. Uh, Emmett Walsh. I see him now. Yes, I do know this guy.
1: Okay, he played a young basketball player called Set Shot Buford in the movie. I'm sorry, my dog is freaking out right now. That is fine. (laughs) I think the mailman is likely here. Meadowlark Lemon from the Harlem Globetrotters plays a character who's a reverend in it, but they put together this cast of crazy characters who are all Pisces, the astrologer who is directing the team, who is kind of the coach. She's basically the Phil Jackson character in this. And she has like a puppet coach that was like, can't remember his name, Derek Fisher from last a like, couple of years mm-hmm. ago. But Stockard Channing plays the psychic who is putting the team together. She puts together all Pisces and they go forward and they have their ups and downs and they're a motley crew of punks and rejects who no one thought could make good, but miraculously they make good, which is like my favorite sports movie trope. <laughs> but there is this scene where Dr. J is out on date with the little kid's older sister. It's the middle of the night and they drive out to a basketball court and he just takes off his shirt and plays basketball by himself for like five minutes while she watches. (laughs) And it's amazing. (laughs) And there's this song that's playing under it. Like, I think it's by The Spinners, just like about how good at basketball Moses Guthrie is. (laughs) Yeah, it's an amazing film that you should definitely check
0: out See, two thoughts came to me as you were explaining that One is that I realized I had no idea who Dr. J was Except for there was a joke about him in Secret Wars When when they (laughs) asked the human Dorch if he can do something And he says, does Dr. J play round ball? At the (laughs) time, I was 26 reading that And I had to go and look that up Because I had no idea what I don't know if that was a yes or a no (laughs) <laughs> Turns out the answer is yes. Well,
1: I mean, you have to look it up because, like, the Human Torch, I think was, he was a perpetual teenager, yep, yep. right? Or more or less. Him calling basketball round ball.
0: <laughs> That's like a 1930s <laughs> thing, I think. And then to compound that, you said Meadowlark Lemon. And I went rocketing back to watching Pinky and the Brain when there was an entire episode around them lampooning Brian's song as Brain's song. <laughs> And it's like, thank you, my friend, Meadowlark Lemon. (laughs) I cannot play.
1: I was expecting you'd have the uh, Scooby-Doo with the Harlem
0: Globetrotters pull on that. But (laughs) I remember that, too. Animaniacs is even better. (laughs) Because I watched that Harlem Globetrotters Scooby-Doo one before I knew what the Harlem Globetrotters were. And I'm just like, this is just strange. Although I completely accepted Uh. when Batman guessed it on Scooby-Doo and that he had bat snacks that were better than Scooby snacks. (laughs) Well, that's
1: the thing about Adam West Batman. He is always prepared. And Scooby-Doo Batman is clearly Adam West Batman. Absolutely. RIP Adam West. Born you till I join you. Ah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I loved that. that. That was one of the shows that I remember watching at Babysitter's Houses, the reruns of the Adam West Batman and I got so excited, and I totally didn't get that it was a uh, comedy or not anything less than
0: riveting action. Yep. So good. Hey, man, I, I stand by it. I actually literally said this two episodes ago, but I stand by it that Dehydrator Ray was scary as hell when you were a kid.
1: Oh, man,
0: I was scared of everything as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I would make, like, I
1: was just scared of general, like metaphysical threats I was definitely a scared of a scared <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely a scared of the dark and I was scared of flushing the toilet like because it made a noise and if I was by myself that would wake up demons that could live in the sewers <laughs> because I saw the cover of Ghoulies I know what's up. Oh, wow. I mean, I never, I still haven't seen the movie. Too scary. No, thank you. Same. See, I love horror movies, but I don't like scary movies.
0: Yeah, I was the same. Like, I, I was scared by the posters. I never actually sat down and watched them. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's why my resurgence when I was like 19, where I was like, I'm going to go and seek out all these bad horror movies. Looking back now, I was clearly defeating a demon that lifted my head, you know? Uh, yeah, I did a pretty similar thing. But yeah, I would just make up things to be
1: scared of, too. I remember being like six or seven, I think and I wouldn't put on t-shirts without assistance for a while. I don't know how my parents put up with it because somehow I came up with the thought of what if the neck hole is a portal to another dimension? Okay. Then my head would be stuck
0: there and I would have no way to get back. See, I was just going to say something around, you know, worrying about getting the t-shirt stuck on your head and choking or something. But no, no, no. That's next level. (laughs) Yeah. I
1: talked earlier about like it sounding like I'm much older than I am from stories of my youth, but we didn't have a shower in my house until I was like nine. We just had a bathtub and then we had a shower put in eventually. And I was really scared of that. Obviously, I was too young to have seen Psycho, but I think maybe I had just like a through osmosis, a understanding of what that was and that something bad could happen to you if you are in the shower but the story that I made up for myself of why I was afraid of taking a shower had to do with well probably like a long time ago there was some kind of demon A wizard cursed him to be captive until a small boy could make it (laughs) rain inside. Because he figures that's never going to happen. Because back in wizard times, come on, how's that going to go? This is some gargoyles, like when the castle goes above the clouds (laughs) kind of nonsense that you're coming up with. Exactly. But that's the problem with prophecies. You and Greg Weitzman had very specific fears. (laughs) like it wasn't just that it was anything I would get myself to be afraid of anything and I think it was the kind of thing that would start off as like an intellectual exercise and then i
0: would end up just scaring the shit out of myself (laughs) you worked yourself into a shoot
1: yeah exactly (laughs) exactly
0: all right and on that note bringing it full circle into pro wrestling now hub if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet where would they go we're on itunes it's called titan
1: up the defense t-i-t-a-n the older episodes were called teen titan wasteland but i think if you search for either you can find it it is currently listed as titan up the defense and it's a mix of every other week we will cover either a a New Teen Titans issue or a Defenders issue. Have a couple drinks and talk about it. And I think it's pretty fun. Yeah, like I said, you can find that on iTunes, Stitcher, your podcatcher of choice. If you want to send me an email, you can do that at ttwasteland@gmail.com, gmail.com or you can find me under Twitter at, at ttwasteland. We're on Facebook. We're all over that their internet. And if you feel like giving me some money, well, heck, I like money. It's nice. Um, and you can do that at Patreon, which is patreon.com backslash TT Wasteland. I think that's most of the ways. Or if you say my name into the mirror three (laughs) times, I will appear behind you and I will murder you, but you gotta decide if it's worth it to you.
0: (laughs) All right, Hub, thanks for coming on the show. This has been an absolute blast. And I've always wanted to say this, but enjoy, enjoy. Oh, thank you.
1: Thank you. (laughs)
0: to Nathaniel Hubbard for his time. Now, Hubb and his brother Corey are known to imbibe a few whiskeys on Tighten Up the Defense, and Hubb was no exception in requesting a signature cocktail to be a whiskey drink, specifically a Manhattan variant. Now, since I made my very first Manhattan way back in Episode 8, I've become quite a fan of this particular drink, and so I had a few options available. I asked Hubb for a little bit of clarification, not realizing that Hubb lives in Portland and works at a bar. So we had a fantastic conversation involving different kinds of bitters, uses of citrus peel, and various substitutions for vermouth. In the end, I ended up giving him three recipes, but I'm only going to share one here. And so I present the Pisces. In a large mixing jug full of ice, combine one and a half ounces of bourbon. I use Blanton's Single Barrel Special Reserve, but go with what you feel. Three quarters of an ounce of Punta y Mes vermouth. Now, Puntimez is a very specific vermouth, which is actually bittersweet, so it's halfway between a sweet vermouth and a Campari. Finish up with two dashes of Fee Brothers Aztec Chocolate Bitters. Strain into a pre-chilled cocktail glass. Take a long strip of orange peel, rub it along the rim of the glass, twist it over the drink, and drop it in. Whether you're a doctor of round ball or the king of the seas, this drink is speedy-tested, Aqualad approved. Enjoy! The You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, just send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my Wacky Adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, or Lokified82 on Snapchat third week running nothing but baby photos if you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show you can go to patreon.com slash and pledge as little as a dollar a month you can get early access to episodes physical mail and i would just really really appreciate it also some exceptional people continue to send through stuff for baby hero so thank you very much to david and don in winnipeg for your exceedingly generous gifts we really appreciate it all three of us if you'd like to support non-monetarily you can head on over to iTunes in the country of your choice and leave a 5 star rating it helps people find us you can also leave a review and I'll read it out on the show won't that be nice? if you like the music I play on the show there's a Spotify playlist for that just head on over to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word to find the Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used going back to episode 1 including this song It's I Take a Lot of Pride in What I Am by Dean Martin. It's a hub-recommended special. Next week, my guest will be Elizabeth Alley, founder of GeekCraft Expo and co-host of Thor The Lightning and the Storm, about comics and living your most metal life. Join me, won't you? I've now got a new baby sleeping in the room. So it's like, oh. there's like a white noise machine and feedings every couple of hours. And so I'll wake up and I'll go, okay, it's time to, no, no, it's 2 a.m. Cool. Be cool. Just relax for a second. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's got to be a special kind of delirium. I, I can only imagine.
0: Yeah, especially because like for my alarm clock, I use music because so I think the buzzer on my particular alarm is like super aggressive. It's like shock to the system aggressive. So I'm like, all right, I need something <laughs> cooler than that. So I usually put on the radio and for some reason, I chose a classical station, which blends into the white noise really easily. So I'm just oh. like sitting there, just kind of like half awake, half asleep, being like na, 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 na. <laughs> crap, get up, get up, get up.
1: <laughs> so it doesn't so much wake you up as it just kind of subtly steers your dreams in a certain
0: direction. Yeah. Everything becomes very chill and angelic and <laughs> yeah, it's good. That doesn't sound so bad. It's bad if you have to like, you know, get up to catch a train. But other than that, yeah. Oh, it's sure.
1: Good. <laughs> Yeah, I actually have to do a totally different technique with my alarm where I have to have it on the shrillest setting possible and <laughs> I have to put my phone, like, on the other side of the room so I actually have to get out of the bed to turn it off because mm-hmm. otherwise I can just keep maintaining the five minutes more state of awake <laughs> for indefinitely as near as I can tell. It's the, uh, oh, wait, you no. snooze, I don't need breakfast. Yeah. Snooze, I don't need a shower. <laughs> and so I don't actually get the rest from the sleep, but I
0: also don't get anything done. So, <laughs> Yeah, my dad used to tell me when he was a kid that the best feeling that he used to like, he used to ask his mom to wake him up on Saturdays so he could get that feeling of going back to sleep. <laughs> I used to have this thing that would sometimes happen
1: to me when I was in, like, high school, I think it started, possibly even middle school, where I would wake up slightly, then go back to sleep and have a dream that I had gotten up showered and gotten ready for the day and mm-hmm. then gone back to bed and then I would wake up and think like, "Oh, thank God I have all that stuff ready." And then I would just be like, "No,
0: I'm still filthy and naked." <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> it's like those ones where you're in your bed and you're like half asleep and you know you have to go to the bathroom and you start to fall asleep again and you have a dream that you get up and go to the bathroom <laughs> and then like you have to like shock yourself out of that dream and just go, "No, no you cannot relax this much (laughs) you are still in the danger zone okay yeah
1: I haven't started yet yeah I have a history of audiovisual miscues playing a role in performances that I've done the very first sketch comedy thing that I ever did that got performed live. I was super nervous about it, and it was objectively kind of a dumb sketch. It was about the history of the pull-my-finger joke, (laughs) and that it was founded by these very upright, practical joke creators from 1700s England named Reginald Tisdale and Sir Alexander Poonsworth, and that it was... This thing that got refined over, like, at first he had this idea, and he had Alexander Poonsworth tug on his hand, and nothing happened. And he's like, oh, okay, that's not quite it. And then it's like, one year later, and then he had him pull on his finger, and he shit his pants, (laughs) and was like, oh, that's not it either. But I'm very close to something. Clearly some refinement
0: is required.
1: (laughs) Right. And then, good day, sir, good day. And then one year later, and he has the guy pull on his thumb, and then he shoots him in the stomach. (laughs) And he's like, and then just runs away. (laughs) And then finally he's like, oh wait, if I can synthesize these, the pulling of a finger, the nauseating yet strangely titillating aroma of poo-poo, the explosive report of the pistol, aha! And he has this eureka moment. The guy who was running the audio for the show apparently just didn't understand the sketch, and so any time there was any interaction between the two and a thumb or a hand or a finger was pulled, he would add a loud fart sound effect. (laughs) And so the whole thing made no goddamn sense. Your sketch became Blazing Saddles. I mean, it still got some laughs because it was fart noises, but <laughs> but I was like, this. I was just horrified. I was just like staring daggers
0: at him and he was just going like, what? What? You pull a finger, you make a fart noise. Even I know that. He's sitting at the back of the room with that little lamp shining on him, lay like, over the soundboard. And he's just like, I have no idea. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs>
1: it It was so incredibly frustrating, but in retrospect, like not a bad way to break somebody into doing that type of thing like it it all got better from there for the most part
0: I was say, yeah, so yeah it, it works as a good story for a preview, not so much on opening night, right, yeah, man,
1: and it was just like I know I'm just making fart jokes, but I'm making better fart jokes than this audience, I promise. <laughs>